0: Our guest for this episode is novelist Kimia Esla, author of The Daughter Who Walked Away and her latest novel, Sister Seen, Sister Heard. I first heard Kimia on author podcasts from the region, The Excellent, The Feminist Shift, and as soon as I heard her thoughtful conversation about writing, about families, gender-based violence, the need to talk more about diversity in literature, and the need for change, I knew that I wanted to bring her on Watershed Riders. Many thanks to our colleagues over at the Feminist Shift for their good work, and to Kimia's publishers at Roseway Publishing for sending me a copy of her latest book. As in-person events began to open up in fall 2022, I had a chance to meet Kimia at the Bestiful Reads event in Waterloo. Her first novel, The Daughter Who Walked Away, came out in 2019 and it was included in Ms. Magazine's Reads for the Rest of Us that year. Carla Strand of Ms. describes it as a powerful debut that follows three generations of Iranian women determined to break the cycles of trauma and live healthy and loving lives. The novel was also long listed for the very best books of 2019 on the Miramichi Reader. Kimia Esla describes herself as a third-wave feminist and a queer writer. She was born in Shiraz, Iran, and lived with her parents and siblings in New Delhi in India before immigrating to Canada and settling in Toronto. She now lives in the Grand River region, and she is an instructional designer in addition to being a writer. Welcome to Watershed Writers, Kimia Esla.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this book. Uh, congratulations on Sister Seen, Sister
1: Heard. It's been a really pleasant experience. The second book has been like very uh, nurturing. So, yeah, thank you.
0: Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I know that publishing a book in 2022 has been kind of an experience. Things were opening up, but of course, even that was you know highly negotiated. So uh, I'm glad to hear that you've been having a, a good experience with it. I want to start by asking you about your genesis as a novelist. How did you find yourself at a place in your life where, you know, you were like, okay, now I'm going to write a novel and I'm going to write a second novel. And perhaps you're working on a third right now. And I ask because I teach emerging writers and I I know that all kinds of people can write a short story, but getting to that book length isn't something that happens in a day. Two days or a hundred days or even a hundred sort of steps or things to do. So I'm always trying to demystify that for our uh, listeners who are writers and just for people who are are interested in the in the art in general. Can you talk about how you found yourself there, how you got yourself there?
1: Certainly. First off, I want to give a shout out to anyone who writes short stories because it can take a very long time for a short story to become worthy. The constraint of having, Fewer words, it's difficult. It's easier, actually, I find, to write a novel because it's like having a very long winded speech. (laughs) I don't have to be as succinct and get to it as quickly. But for myself and my experience as a writer, I want to say that I think that we are all storytellers and that it starts in childhood, that we learn to tell stories to ourselves about how the world works and that understanding even if the story requires a considerable amount of suspension of disbelief that we need these stories in order for us to really understand and be able to move forward in our actions these stories don't need to be structured or formalized into novels and really most of them of these stories that we tell ourselves we never speak out loud and that's can be great because keeping a story inside can be really powerful. It's like a private explanation, right? And, and to have a story within us that doesn't require any outside critique or any close examination of our belief system, that's a powerful thing. But I need to write these stories aloud because I need to understand that what I'm telling myself is legitimate i need to understand that it's a shared experience and so how did i come to writing novels i came to them because i had these stories in my mind that i was telling myself explaining how i came to be in the world different people that i knew how they came to the place that they are in life and i needed to see if the story could hold water could i write it And explain it according to what I thought. And does it still make sense, even with a critical gaze on it? And it's a quite cathartic way of being able to have other people in the world read my version of events, not real events, but just the stories, and to be able to have other people say, Yes, that makes sense. I've experienced that. I know what that's about. I mean, I've certainly had many people in my life who have doubted my version of events, my stories. And to put it in a book and stick it out there in the world and have other people say that they can see how that could happen, that this is viable, this is a a realistic uh, portrayal of how things could go, it just gives me a little more security in the sense of this is my story that I'm telling you, and it is possible. I hope that answers your question.
0: Yeah, it, it does. It does. Because I think taking all those steps, becoming a novelist needs a kind of fire in the belly, right? You need to have a real drive to, and not to do it for an esoteric uh, reason, but to do it because of something within you that you that you really need or, or want to have done. So that makes total sense to me. Are, are novels like like peanuts? Once you write one, you really want to write another?
1: <laughs> I think they might be almost like uh, taking political office. Once you take one term, you really want to come back to the next. And if they're willing to give you a higher position, you know, you want to, you want to try for it. Certainly the same way that we give positive encouragement to uh, any youth when they try something. And we tell them, well, that's great. Now let's try one more, you know. It's that same kind of feeling of having being praised or being acknowledged by having people invest time, energy, money. Into me is a reminder that I have something that people want to hear. I want to put it on paper. So let's do it. Okay. If I have all of the willpower and the energy that I need, or just a little bit and somebody else can boost me up, then definitely they are like peanuts. As it lays chips, (laughs) once you have one, (laughs) I, I eat the whole bag, obviously.
0: Right. And also, once you identify what is possible in terms of what can be said, it's like, oh, wait, I. If that's so, then I have more to say, right? I've got another book in me and another. So I read, I think you were uh, writing a, were you writing a blog or a Substack? Anyway, it doesn't matter. You've described yourself in that piece of online writing as, and I'm gonna quote from you, a publicist's worst nightmare, a cynic with a filter that pass a soup can. <laughs> I had to laugh when I read it. Good for you. (laughs) That's what I like to hear, right? You go on to talk about the fact that one of the reasons you're the publicist's worst nightmare is that you don't like the question, how will this book impact the world? And I have to say that I really want to invite you to be your most cynical as you want to be (laughs) uh, as we talk. And just to declare that I don't love that, you know, how the, the book will impact the world question myself uh, as an interviewer or a writer. Uh, so I'm not going to ask it here, although I am going to talk about how the books impacted me and perhaps, you know, invite you to, uh, to talk about, yeah, how writing the book impacted you. Because I do think the books do things. Right. But I also know <laughs> I also know the reading has been described as staring at a dead tree and hallucinating, <laughs> which is something I read this week, and I think is uh, is an interesting take. So I take sort of that the publicist question about impact the world with with a grain of salt. It's a lot to ask of a single book, you know, uh, an impact on the world. Uh, yeah. As a cynic, what do you uh, what do you have to say about marketing and, and publishing and these kinds of unanswerable questions about books.
1: You know, I think about every time that there is a movement, whether it's civil rights movement of the United States with like the Million Man March or other movements where we're making it known that it's something is not okay, you know, time's up, right? It's not a person. It's as many people as you can possibly gather together. And then that group still Has to bear the brunt of all of the backlash that comes from mainstream media. So to imagine that any one author, any one book, any one movie or piece of art, or anyone's speech is going to make an impact on the world, I don't even know why we bother to have that conversation because we're not children and we're not creating fairy tales about the world for ourselves. If we know the truth, it's that change comes over time change comes as a result of generations of people trying and not one person so what is the impact of this book the impact of this book is that I get to make appearances and then I get to tear down the establishment that set up those appearances really I went to an event recently and it was so obvious that I was a token member of a dozen people who were writers i think two of us were people of color and none of the writers who were who would have identified as white ever touched the issue of race in their readings there was a complete lack of acknowledgement that they had a race so when i came up to the podium <laughs> to do my reading it didn't come out the way it would have Had the room been diverse, multicultural, people of all walks of life who write and like to read, what it came out as was me just letting the entire audience know that I am brown, that I am different, and I only see me. And that if you want to support diversity, you have to do it at every possible opportunity. One is not enough. So, one book is not going to make a change. It's just over time, making sure that I'm not just feeding myself, that I'm holding space open for every person who didn't get to be on that stage. And a show of solidarity. I raise my fist and I say, hey, now that you gave me the mic, just to let you know, there aren't enough of us. I'm not going to read from my book. There aren't enough of us. <laughs> I'm not going to make you feel good for inviting me. Because there aren't enough of us here.
0: And you didn't read.
1: Oh, I like to think I didn't read. I read. They were were paying me. I read a short little (laughs) snippet of something, and I'm I'm just as soft bellied as everybody else. You know, (laughs) I, I can cave to pressure. And I wanted to make the statements that I made. And I let them know that I'm also a writer and I also have content, but I am distinct from my content. Yeah, it's just a very interesting experience. Every single time I'm asked to represent a swath of people, so many groups, I'm asked to represent them. And I want people to know that that's not possible. We would never ask a white person to do that. Why are you asking me?
0: Excellent point. Do you think this has been a kind of uh, way that the cynic in you have, has been fed by encountering such uh, such events and and such pressures to represent on uh, like on a wide scale when you're one person?
1: Actually have it easier with, not that I would want this on anybody, but any kind of hate mail that I've received and results as a feedback from my writing, like people just reaching out. If it's misogynistic or if it's racist or if it's queerphobic, whatever it is, when it's extreme like that, or even when it's like subtle but still extreme, I can take that a little bit more easily than I can the left-leaning liberal tokenism. I find that very difficult. I can't go through a meeting without constantly bringing out the race card and like mentioning, hey, okay, we're not talking about race here. Maybe we should be. And it's the harder of the two. When I feel extremism come up, I understand it. I can talk to it in a way that I can't talk to a left-leaning, liberal-minded person who doesn't realize they're racist.
0: It's insidious, right? Uh, yeah, and it's like the patriarchy, it's very hard for people you embedded in the patriarchy to to recognize that they are right. And it takes like extreme action or, you know, a, a kind of um, moment that it's very hard to make happen for them. Right. And that they're going to recognize it or not. And all we can do is keep offering book by book, sentence by sentence, event by event, etc. Exactly. Right?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: OK. So let's talk about the book and to think about this book as a a kind of, certainly a a personal action, but also a political action. And speaking of feminism, for me, something I really enjoyed and I love to see in this book was the the relationship between the two sisters, Farah and Farzana, and uh, the fact that they have such contrasting personalities yet the care that they take of each other was really moving for all the relationships in the book i was just really moved by how you wrote personalities and the dynamics between those personalities something that i wanted to ask you about was because the two young women are are contrasted within the family. And it's become such a dynamic among the family that the young women do it themselves. They compare themselves to their their, uh, sister. I wanted to know how early in the book did that contrast appear to you? Did it alter the structure of the book when you were writing? Like how important was, was it that you had these two young women who cared for each other despite or because of the fact that they were very different?
1: So when we write books, we write characters. They're not people. We try very hard to get as close to people as we can. But the truth is that if we try to write a full person, it becomes a grocery list. And then it's not as easy for the reader to connect with them because in a, in a way we want to leave holes so that the reader fills in those holes in the character and then hooks into that character based on their own feel for that person. So I did want to make empty spaces for people to be able to just connect with these two women on their own terms. But as characters, I also wanted to show how women, especially young women, do their best to make it in the world, but the tools that they use are dependent on their personalities. So. I think about like a young woman who has, you know, long hair covering most of her face. That might be a way of like shielding herself. Now, whether that long hair comes straightened and very, very polished looking, or it's just a big frizz and it's just right in front of her face, that that can be up to her. And so I wanted to show that these two young women have their own distinct personalities. They're both... Ambitious in that they share that trait with their parents, but the distinction between them is really about their difference in personality, whereas one sister doesn't like waves, doesn't like conflict, doesn't want there to be a big blowout the older sister who's more polished. So she gets along in the world by doing things in a way that is much more appealing and appeasing to the eye. So she does things in the background. She tends to hide a lot of herself and compartmentalize her lives to avoid there being conflict. And the younger sister being a little bit more, I'm losing my expressions here, but you know, just throwing it up to the wind or whatever it is that we say like she doesn't she doesn't care so much what people think she wants an identity that is strong and is firm and so she dresses and she speaks and she just carries herself in a way that is full of attitude and dying for some sort of confrontation So definitely there is contrast between the two characters. If I could, I would have wrote a third sister. You know, it would have just complicated matters a bit, but I I could write a third sister even. And that would be a different way of showing another woman who is moving through the world in a way that works for her. So that's where contrast came from.
0: That's great! Oh, I love this idea of the third sister, and of course, I I want you to write a, a novel with with, with <laughs> the third sister. <laughs> yeah, who's
1: perfectly good and nothing bad happens, and she likes everything.
0: <laughs> well, maybe we'll jump to another question. I have, you know, we had uh, E. K. Johnson, the novelist, on on the show, and she's known as Kate Johnson, and I, I'm going to repeat something that the the Kate said. She's written a book, uh, her book, Exit Pursued by a Bear, has uh, a, an assault in it. And the rest of the book untangles the uh, aftermath of the assault and the young woman's healing and her and her confidence. So Kate works in realist fiction, like that book, as well as in fantasy. She writes for the Star Wars series, etc. So she told us in her interview that after writing a book where a girl becomes a god about space travel and tales of dragon slayers, The most fantasy-based thing she's written was her novel in which a young woman was assaulted and everyone believes her. And she was wry about this. She said, yeah, that was the moment that where that was real fantasy because everyone believed her. So I guess that's what I want to ask you about the world outside the novel and, of course, the world that the family builds within it, because there is an assault in, in this novel. And the family does believe the young woman, and that becomes very important for what the novel does, like in in terms of how I read it, it becomes very important belief, and the young woman's confidence becomes important for how the novel moves forward. Can I ask you to to comment on that?
1: I love what Kate said about the experience of that being the most uh, unrealistic, the most magical part of it is that people believe. So this is interesting. I wrote a book about sexual violence and predatory behavior, and it came out as a book about a family and about an immigrant family. You see, it is that difficult to read a book by a woman of color, an author of color, who writes about sexual assault, said it in a family of four, and still have it be about the sexual assault. It's still not about the sexual assault. And and I think in every single situation that I've been asked about the book, it has been from the stance of the immigrant experience, right? So we just go back to the immigrant experience. So there's something about, there's something that happens in the process of writing a book, promoting, publicizing a book, And then the zeitgeist and what they do with that bit of information, right? So if this book was written with different characters who were not brown, who were possibly white, would it be about the family? Or would it be about the sexual violence? Would it be about the predatory behavior? I kind of have to roll with it as a writer because I cannot choose what people read into it. I would wish that the interpretation would be a little bit more varied. Some people pick it up as an immigrant experience, some people see it as a story of violence against women and how difficult it is to put that into a context that doesn't put the woman as um, a triggering effect, like that she caused it. But I'm going to have to get you to get me that question again. (laughs)
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It was a long question. Yeah, I was just interested in that idea of the fact that Kate said this was the most unbelievable part that people believed her, right? This was the, mm-hmm. you're right, you, you called it like a magical or fantasy kind of uh, of thing that uh, the assault happens. And apart from the police, who kind of raise raise one eyebrow and wonder what a one young woman was doing walking on campus alone. And I thought, uh, <laughs> hello, <That's> every day, <laughs> <laughs> That's every day. I, you know, and, and women really are a allowed to walk alone and be definitely allowed to walk alone on a, on a university campus that is supposed to be safe for them and catering mm-hmm. to their futures. But everyone else, everyone else in, uh, in the young woman's life steps up. She's got this, um, great friend who witnesses the assault or the beginning of the assault from, you know, maybe, you know, 500 meters away and just drops everything and runs towards the danger, right? Which I have to say when when she did it, I I gasped, right? Because I just thought, one, that's an incredible act of friendship. Two, that's very dangerous for her also. And she has just, sort of forgotten about the the danger to her in her devotion to her friend. And I was just I was blown away by her courage. And by the fact that she's so devoted to the to the other young woman in friendship. And I just, um, it was a huge moment for me, I just thought, wow, wow, right. And I felt like I hadn't really seen that in fiction. Anyway, I've, I'm changing uh, my my I, question and just yakking no, on because no, no, I love I, this moment.
1: Okay, so I said in a an interview that I had with the Feminist Shift podcast. That was a great podcast. Also, that I accidentally stumbled on saying this, and and now I'm I just believe it now because I, now I realize that I, I wrote a fairy tale, right? I wrote the perfect way to deal with it's you know how i learned to love the bomb right it's like how i how i learned to teach others the way i would want to be treated should something like this happen because it's one in four i think now it's one in three right it's it's happening all the time and are we talking about it sometimes and if we are talking about it and we don't know how to help I wanted to show how, and I wanted people to be able to see that there is, there's no value in that adage that, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Life is not like that. It just, it makes you weaker unless you have support in order to just regain yourself enough for the next time something happens, because that's life. That's the rest of your life as things will happen. I wanted to have almost like an instructional manual that was very compassionate, especially toward the patriarchs who think that they have to solve everything, right? And to be able to have them understand that here's one man, and here's how he did it. You don't have to do it like that. But it could be this easy, where you just listen, and you believe, and you ask how to help. And you fail, and it's okay, and you don't take it to heart, and you move forward with the victim in order to support them. So in a way, I guess I did write something that was magical because I didn't have that experience. I don't really know any woman who's this close to me having survived an experience like that and then gone through it as smoothly. It is a bit of a fairy tale, but I'm hoping it's instructional.
0: Yeah, I I like that. I think that's, I I think that's interesting. And I think it yeah, and I think it does really align with uh, with some of uh, Kate's comments. I really like that Farah doesn't fundamentally change, right, that it happens. And uh, and her family and friends support her, and she continues on. She doesn't change the way she dresses. She doesn't change uh, her rebellious nature. She continues to push back against uh, her father when when he is uh, too controlling. And I thought I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, we don't see a kind of a moment where she. I mean, she has her. She has her recovery period. But it doesn't fundamentally change how she operates in the world, which I, which I really liked.